Well, good evening, everybody. It is a wonderful day to praise our God and King Jesus. So would you stand with us in worship?
Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, good evening. How are y'all doing? You ready for some snow? Why not, huh? Travis, your name was on the list to be up here with this group, I tell you. You got old, okay. Can't stand that long. Well, my new granddaughter and I would like to welcome you to Fellowship Mosaic tonight. Yeah, she gave you a little smile there. It's great to be here with you and uh, just have a few little announcements for us to run through. Great. Daniel uh, and his wife Kristen stepped in to lead worship tonight. I want to mention that. Kyle was supposed to be leading and he's going to be playing bass instead. Isn't it great to be able to be that versatile? So Kyle just stepped back playing bass, and then Daniel and Kristen stepping up to help lead us tonight. So thank you so much. Nick, good to see you out there. You look relaxed. Yeah. I'm glad you do. Hey, uh, welcome to all of you. It's great to have you here. If you're uh, new here at Fellowship Mosaic, you see that they've put up ropes uh, now on those back seats. And guess what that's for? For you to move forward. And so you seem so far away from me tonight. There are three or four rows there. So if you want to move here in a little bit, you just feel free to move. Come on in here closer. It feels more like family. Love that. You know, we are a church with a ministry called community. We are not a church with community groups. We are made up of small groups. And if you are not in a small group, we want you to be in a small group. And uh, you can get signed up for that out in the foyer uh, tonight. Talk to somebody about it. They would love to visit with you. Our elders decided a long time ago that it's not enough just to show up for a service once a week that you need community. We need that care network where we know people, they know us, and we can study the scripture together, we can grow together, so we want you to be a part of community. And all sorts of community opportunities, if you want to target that QR code, you can find out more about that. And uh, we have women's groups, uh, we have all sorts of things going on here at Fellowship, so encourage you to do that. Discover is coming up. Discover Fellowship, that's a, a pre-membership experience that you can be a part of, and uh, we want to encourage you. That's going to start on February the 4th, I believe, and uh, community starts that week as well. So please take note of those things. Uh, Loving Choices, to tell you tonight that this is our baby bottle campaign that we participate uh, in every year. Do we have bottles at the back tonight? They're somewhere, or we have them at Booth C. We've got baby bottles here for you to take with you. And what we do is take those baby bottles over the next few weeks. They're supposed to be back by February the 12th. Take those, those bottles home with you. Put change in them, put dollar bills in them, and then write a big check and put it in there with it too. Because we believe in the sanctity of human life from the womb to the tomb. Here at Fellowship, just let it be known. We believe and we have partnered with Loving Choices for years and years and years and they do a fantastic job. And this is an opportunity for us to support them in an incredibly creative way. They are more than pro-life, they are pro-love. They are pro-love. And these young women who have unexpected pregnancies can come in there and they can get help and hope and lots of love from those folks there gathered to help them. And it's not just the young ladies. It's the young men 
as well. They have a program for them. I did a podcast with them a while back, the Ride Home Podcast. If you want to go listen to that uh, uh, recording I did with Dana Sweethall just a few months ago, it'll tell you all about the different ministries that Loving Choices offers. So I encourage you to take part in that. Um, 1999, we built this room. And uh, we, we were doing four services over in the family center. Uh, it was a little bit larger then. We put a few walls in so it would be smaller, but it, it was full. And we were doing four services. And so we built this, this room, and immediately we started growing so fast that we realized that we needed even more room for our kids because we built a worship center for the adults, kind of a selfish move, but we didn't build room for the kids. So we had to build five big buildings here on our campus for, uh, to take care of our students and our children, also our offices at the back and the chapel area and the classrooms. Had to do all that, and we, that was called the great investment. And uh, that was so much we really had to put that on a, a long-term deal, and uh, we just paid that off in December. And so that, that is a huge celebration for us. But then we filled right back up, and we were in three services in this room, and, and Chip Jackson came in 1998. We started Fellowship Mosaic and, and uh, moved over here, and, and it just continued to grow. And the folks in Fayetteville said, hey, we'd love to have a campus down here. And so 2011, we started working on that. We finished it in 2016, and in five years, we built that, and we paid it off, all paid for and in 2017, we started a project here in Bentonville. Miraculous thing. I could tell you the story of that. Uh, but we started the project in Bentonville because when the folks in Fayetteville left, we just started filling right back up here. And a lot of our folks here on uh, in Saturday night, they were living in Bentonville. And so uh, they went to that Bentonville campus, which is, which is great. Uh, but we built that, and we had a goal of paying that off at the same time we paid off TGI. And I can tell you, reporting to you tonight, that everything that we've done since 1999 is paid in full. Everything. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us. But to you be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. And so we don't want to take credit for any of that, right? It's not us, but it's what God is doing through, in and through his people. So if you participated in that in any way, I just want to say thank you to you and then give us the opportunity to just say thank you to God. And uh, if you had recurring gifts set up to help with either TGI or with Fellowship Bentonville, you need to go and turn that off. Okay, Or you can transfer it into our general fund because we've had real challenges over the last year of meeting our budget. And as a matter of fact, in the last few months, we were wondering whether we were going to be able to do some mission trips and things like that that we wanted to do this coming spring. And so we, we want to encourage you in our generosity. Let's, let's make a difference. So would you join me in just saying thanks for the Lord and thanks to the Lord and praying for this service? Just take a quiet moment to express your gratitude.
Lord, we know you have much for us to accomplish, much for us to do. And Lord, even though we didn't have to pay a lot of interest because of what you provided over these last years, even though we had debt, we were able to leverage all that you provided so that we didn't have to pay a lot of interest. Lord, we are glad to have that behind us because we know that there are new horizons and new opportunities before us. And Lord, we just ask that you would show us the way. We know we have a biblical mandate to grow. We want to love you. We want to love others. We want to make disciples as you've commanded us to do. And so again, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. We thank you with all of our hearts. And we thank you for doing immeasurably more than we could have ever asked or imagined. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, would you all stand again and sing with us? Let's sing about making Christ larger than ourselves in our lives. Were creation suddenly articulate With a thousand tongues to lift one cry Then from north to south and east to west We'd hear Christ be magnified The whole earth echoing his imminence His name would burst from sea and sky From rivers to the mountaintops We'd hear Christ be magnified Sing this with me, Christ
sing this to him. I won't bow to idols. And I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Cause death is just the doorway into resurrection life. If I join you in your sufferings, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my song will still be singing. My song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let His praise arise. Christ be magnified. We serve a faithful God, don't we? He is good. And if there's been one through line through this series and even just hearing what Mickey just said, just, man, his faithfulness comes at times through our obedience and at times in spite of our imperfections. He is gonna accomplish his will regardless. But we get the opportunity to join in. That's the beautiful thing about being his church. We get the opportunity to be a part of making that happen. And that's what this invitation is. That's what the offering is. That's one way that we can join in, whether it's with our time, our talent, or our treasure. And so as we pray this together, um, my prayer is that we would approach it with a heart of gratitude and of asking the question, how can I join in? How can I respond to this invitation? And so would you say this offering prayer with me? We lift this up to our God and King. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your son and your spirit, amen.
Um, I get to serve with our youth ministry, and I just, I adore it. My girls are seniors now, which is a little hard to believe. Um, one of our favorite things to do and my favorite ways to watch them grow is in reading scripture. So I'd like to invite you to read along with me tonight for tonight's passage. We are in Esther chapter 8, verse 15. It says, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is the word of the Lord. God's sovereign hand, it says on the screen. You ever have trouble trusting the sovereign hand of God? You know, back just a couple of months ago, someone asked me, said, are we going to reach our goal for Bentonville? Because we'd set the goal to be able to pay it off by late December, early January. And I looked at that $3.2 million that was left to be paid off, and I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think we're going to make it. And I began making plans to try to get it paid off over the next year. You know, all we knew when we started the project, people would ask me, how much is the Bentonville project going to cost? And all I knew was what it cost us in Fayetteville. And I said somewhere between 15 and $17 million. And that project wound up costing us $29,877,504 and a few cents. That was daunting. Daunting. But God is sovereign, isn't he? His hand is over us. And as I said earlier, he can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, as we're told in the scriptures. C.S. Lewis had this to say, and I have provided bullet points. C.S. didn't do that, okay? But it's to help us understand this, because if you read it too fast, it can blow right by you. He said, it is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. It's alive. 
And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, goodness, inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter king husband, that is quite another matter. Why? Because all of a sudden we realize that God is intimately involved in each of our lives and our hearts and our heads. Don't write him off as some cosmic deity that is impersonal and who doesn't know you and doesn't care about you. That you can just slide right through this life on your own and just tap into him once in a while. Mm -mm. It doesn't work like that. God is moving. As I've prayed through the years, he, he moves in these services, down, up and down these rows, speaking, wooing, calling you to something deeper through his word, through your times of prayer. Don't write him off. He is the sovereign God watching over us, caring, involved, correcting, nurturing. We should live in reverent fear because the sovereign hand of God watches over us. In the book of Esther, the word God is never printed, but he is there. He is ever present in their activities. And so we want to explore the sovereignty of God and the necessity of our obedience in this passage. So stay with me for a minute because I want to explore a couple of things about the book of Esther outside of the book of Esther. Okay, hang with me. Don't say, when is he going to get to Esther? He's got four chapters to cover tonight. Just stay with me. Let me ask you a question. Do you do everything? No, let me do that again. Do we do everything the Bible tells us to do? Don't raise your hand. Do we ever do everything the Bible tells us to do? Do every precept in the scripture, the commands of Christ, do we do everything the Bible tells us to do? What about coveting? You ever covet? I used to work with a guy back in the late 70s and 80s. He's a state senator now, and we worked building fences, and we drove around in an old black truck full of fencing equipment and the, the old truck didn't even have a gear shift. It was a standard, and we used a nail to shift the gears. Build those fences, and, and both of us were as poor as church mice, didn't know how we were going to live. And he'd see a, we were both believers, and he'd, he'd see a nice car coming down the road. He said, ooh, look at that car. like to have that, wouldn't you? And I'd say, yeah, and he'd say, covet, covet. Catch me every time. Oh, that's a nice house. I'd like to live there, wouldn't you? Yeah, covet. What about other respectable sins? 
as Jerry Bridges called them in his book, Respectable Sins. What about other respectable sins? Should, should we mistakenly think that we're nearing the plateau of sinless, sinlessness because we don't participate in the big three like stealing, adultery, and murder? Are, are, we, are we somehow much better because we don't participate in those, but we do participate in the respectable sins? Listen to the list. Ungodliness, ingratitude, anger, discontentment, pride, selfish, gluttony, impatience, irritability. Feeling uncomfortable yet? Judgmentalism, sins of the tongue, profanity, gossip, slander, lack of self-control. Envy, jealousy, all of those things make us uncomfortable because they weave in and out of our lives day by day and we become comfortable with them because everybody does it, right? Everybody does those sins. Everybody commits them. And so we don't get terribly bothered by them. But we got to remember what Jesus said on the last night he was here. If you love me, obey my commands. So our commitment to loving God and recognizing his sovereign hand is over us is somehow tied to our willingness to do what he says to do. To live in the way that he says we should live. Now I'm going to suggest to you that Esther and Mordecai were guilty of something called compromised obedience. Compromised obedience where they got caught up, lost in cultural drift. You say, wait, these are the heroes of the story. Hang with me. Compromised obedience is where one sins possibly unintentionally, not realizing the significance of their action or their inaction. Now, we could get into talking about willful disobedience where you say, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. But respectable sins, this compromised obedience brought about by cultural drift is much more subtle. As a church, we, we are careful to watch for mission drift. We, we don't want as a church to move away from the moorings of Scripture. We want to stay true to the Scriptures. And we look around us and we see a lot of churches that have moved so far away from the Scripture. And many of them are paying the price for it now, aren't they? Because they don't know who they are. They made decisions based on what the world was saying rather than what the Bible says. And now they, they have no basis for their beliefs because they've gotten away from the Bible. That's mission drift. But cultural drift is something else. So what was the problem? How do we see this in the book of Esther? And I'm just going to put a question up here. Why were the Jews still in Persia? Why were Esther and Mordecai Still in Persia. 
They weren't supposed to be there. They weren't supposed to be in Persia. You see, the book of Esther takes place in the Persian period after many Israelites had done what they were supposed to do and returned to the promised land. When they returned to the promised land, they were supposed to rebuild the temple and reestablish the sacrificial system of worship. Because you see, for a Jew in that day, you could only worship in Jerusalem. And, and worship was minutely regulated. It had to be in Jerusalem, in the temple, during that day. God had, had prescribed that. And to be separated from the temple was to be separated from God. That's why if you were unclean and couldn't go in the temple, it was the worst thing that could happen to you. Because you were separated from God. And that's why the Jews longed to return to their homeland. If you want to see the depth of their grief, read Lamentations in your Bible. The Lamentations of Jeremiah during the exile. They longed to go home. Or at least some of them did. Why did they not return? You see, Isaiah and Jeremiah had told them they were to go back after that 70-year period. Let me make my case from the scriptures. Isaiah 48.20, leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. Jeremiah 58, flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians and be like goats that lead the flock. Jeremiah 51, 6, flee from Babylon, run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will repay her what she deserves. Jeremiah 29, 10, look at this one. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. As we said, so as a nation, they could worship together. John Walford wrote this. And I'm just going to take pieces from this quote. Esther and Mordecai had not returned to the land and did not seem interested in complying with the prophetic command to return. The law is never mentioned in, in the book, nor are the sacrifices or offerings referred to. Prayer is never mentioned in the book, though fasting is. This fits the view that the Jewish people residing in the Persian Empire were not following God's will. They were shunning their responsibility to return to Palestine and to become involved in temple worship. Both Esther and Mordecai seemed to have lacked spiritual awareness except in their assurance that God would protect his people. That God was sovereign. You see, they've gone through the lot, they, you know, through the exodus. They, they made it through the exodus, and then they, they went into the land. 
And then they went through the period of the judges. And then they went through the period of the kings. And Saul and David and Solomon. And then, then came Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And they split because of taxes into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then they disobeyed God over and over and over again. And he sent prophets to tell them, don't do it. Don't go this way. Don't go this way. They kept disobeying. And he sent the Assyrians to the northern kingdom, the Babylonians to the southern kingdom. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed. They had been sent into captivity, all except for a few farmers that were left. They'd been through all of that. They wouldn't listen. But in 538 B.C., Cyrus told the Jews to go back home and worship their God. And many did. I think Esther and Mordecai were still there because of their compromised obedience. Is that possible for us, you think? Compromised obedience is happening today. We're like the frog in the kettle, aren't we? Cultural drift starts to move in and we lose touch with where we should be. That sovereign God, that hunter king that is over us. We begin to move away and listen to the world more than we listen to him. We get away. In our study of Esther, something significant is about to happen. Haman is plotting to wipe out the Jews and Mordecai persuades Esther to do something to go before King Headache, as Nick called him. Go before King Headache and, and, and try to do something about it. And Mordecai says, for such a time as this. For such a time as, as, as this, Esther, this is your time. Step up for your people. Well, let's pick up the story of Chapters 5 through 8 with the Bible Project tonight. Now in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai, but all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep, and he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading, and he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution, and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. 
It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that, first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now, the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. That's how you get through four chapters in one night. You got the story? Then let's look at the characters in this narrative. I want to look at what we can learn from their lives. Let's start with them. Xerxes, indecisive, idolatrous, and arrogant, wasn't he? The king. Haman, evil, egotistical. He was a racist. Mordecai, generous and good, trustworthy. Esther, she was beautiful, she was brave, and she was courageous. Let's look at each one of them for a moment. Xerxes. He was the king. Some of the phrases listed in there. The king was sitting on his royal throne. Another phrase. If it pleases the king. I don't know about you, but monarchies kind of get under my skin a little bit. The whole fact that we, we would call ourselves a king... It just doesn't really work for me. Kings need to know that at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is only one king, and that's King Jesus. Amen? It's just King Jesus. He's the only king. And kings need to know that when this game is over, the kings and the pawns are all put in the same box. Xerxes ruled a big kingdom. He really did. I mean, it stretched all the way from Greece to India and all the way down to northern Africa. So it was a huge kingdom. But that doesn't make you more important than another human being. I mean, kings put their pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else. But not him. He was caught up in it, even if you entered his presence in in, in the wrong way. Esther was fearful for her life before him. It says she won favor in the sight of the king. If you didn't please him, it didn't bode well for you. But we see a comical uh, part of this story, and and Nick pointed that out a couple of weeks ago. it's a comedy in a way because you have, here have Mordecai. He can't go to sleep. And so he has, the king has somebody read to him like he's four. 
Somebody comes in and read to him, but the sovereign hand of God has them read just the right thing. Mordecai had saved his life and he had never truly thanked him for it. And it turned everything around. And it reminds us in God's sovereignty that even the forgetfulness of a pagan king was used by God to preserve and protect his people. Every king needs to be reminded of this verse. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And so if you ever get distraught about someone who's elected, remember, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. There is never a time when God is out of control. It is all in his hand. Haman. Man, Haman, he was evil. He was egotistical. He was a racist. He reminded his friends in this passage of his, the splendor of his riches, how much he'd been given. He told them how the king had honored him and given him promotions. He boasted how he had risen above everyone else. He gloated that he and he alone had been given an invitation to the special feast. He was totally enamored with the social aspects of life. Don't do that. Don't get enamored with getting your picture in a magazine. Or get so enamored because you can drop someone's name or... No. Don't get caught up in that. You think Jesus would have clamored to have his picture in a magazine? He didn't need all that. But Haman was living off of it, and it fed into his egotism. But he couldn't be happy until something was done about that Jew, Mordecai, who refused to pay him honor. He took his wife's and his friend's foolish advice built a 75-foot pole thinking he could manipulate a way for Mordecai to be impaled on it. Some versions read gallus, but as close as we can tell, it was a pole for him to be impaled like you saw on the screen just a moment ago. But what a funny scene that must have been when Haman had to lead Mordecai through the city on a horse proclaiming, This is what the king does for people who do good things for him. And when the time came, he didn't have the opportunity to fix his mistakes because the guards showed up to take him to the banquet where he would be condemned. He hated the Jews because he was a Canaanite. He was a Canaanite. You remember hearing that word before? When when the Jews were with Joshua, And they entered the land. They were told they were to wipe out the Canaanites. Why? Because the Canaanites were so depraved and so profane. If you want to know why, go back and read Leviticus chapter 18. And it will tell you what kind of sins that they participated in. And the Lord did not want his people exposed to that. Haman was a Canaanite. And he hated the Jews. Let me just say this. There is no place for racism in the life of a Christian. There is no place for racism 
in our lives at all. I agree with Frederick Douglass who once said he wondered if he and the slaveholders were reading the same Bible. You can't read the good book and believe that racism is true. There should be none of it. And if there is anything in our hearts that is racist, it needs to be rooted out and replaced with the love of Christ for all people. Numbers 32:23. Somebody should have shared this with Haman. Be sure your sin will find you out. Anyone's mother ever tell them that? So did mine. Be sure your sin will find you out. His evil, prideful, egotistical heart and hatred of the Jews led to his downfall on a pole. His pole. Mordecai, he was generous and good. He was trustworthy. Even though he fell victim to cultural shift and compromise obedience, it seems he was a man of character. He sat at the king's gate, which, which was some position of prominence. So he was respected in Babylon. He was a good caretaker of Esther. After her parents died, he raised her and, and, and raised an incredible woman. I admire so much those of you who are foster parents or you adopt children in, in tough circumstances. And that's what Mordecai did for Esther. He took her in and raised her. He was a steady plotter. Remember, Proverbs 21.5 tells us that steady plotting bring prosperity. His steady plotting, his faithfulness in many things, brought prosperity to the whole nation of the Jews and beyond, as we'll see in a moment. He was wise in many ways. Proverbs 11.30 tells us the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. Esther, she was beautiful, she was brave, she was courageous. Imagine the pressure she was under. I mean, she was just a young lady. Imagine the pressure. Here she was, the queen. She, she had no doubt heard about what had happened to Vashti. Here she was, the queen. But this young lady acted with great courage. You know, one thing I see, uh, she, she ate their food, but Daniel, 100 years earlier, Daniel wouldn't eat their food. So you see even the cultural drift in that amount of time. What was one, once deemed unthinkable and aberrant to the Jews, was now commonplace for them. She listened and obeyed Mordecai, who raised her when she was placed in the position of queen. She didn't say, I don't need you anymore. She still listened to him, and she respected him. And his intuition saved her lives and the lives of so many others. She put her own life at risk for the sake of her people. And she knew she couldn't do it alone. Remember what she asked? She asked, go have all the people fast for me. This is another point. We need community. We need community. We need one another. We need people we can share life with in the context of community. Esther saw that as well. And God spared his people through the acts of Esther. 
Proverbs 2, 8. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Here they are. The key players in the narrative of this great story. They're all part of his plan in his greater story. And you know what? So are you. So are you. I get so disappointed when I hear that someone has committed suicide. They take, them out, they take themselves out of the possibility of being a part of God's greater plan and story. Just when you think you're at the brink of, I can't go on anymore, God's extremity is man, I mean, man's extremity is God's opportunity. And that opportunity may be there for you. We read this verse a moment ago, and I want you to come back to it. It's Esther 8, 17. And look at this, because this is important. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. They were thrilled with this. And you'll hear more about the Feast of Purim later. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is the only place in the Old Testament that this Hebrew word is used for conversion to Judaism. God used this whole thing to draw people from outside of him to Yahweh. Isn't that incredible? The pagan people of the land of Persia were drawn to follow Yahweh because of all that had happened. But we ask, how could God bless the Jews in Persia when they were living in compromised obedience? How can God bless people like you and me when we continually, whether intentionally or unintentionally, participate in respectable sins and this is my story for you tonight that's just how much he loves us <laughs> that's just how much he loves us that's the sovereign hand of God he became one of us and so he knows how we struggle he knows the difficulty of the life that we live he's not an, an impersonal uncaring God who's a cosmic deity who doesn't know you he knows you intimately and he's pulling at the cord to draw you to himself he is the mighty hunter king who wants all of you and so every time you feel that Holy Spirit whisper when you commit a respectable sin or any kind of other sin, that's the hunter king tugging at the cord. And tonight, through the book of Esther, 5 through 8, he makes you aware of that. He makes you aware of the extremes to avoid and aware of the positive things to pursue in order that you might enter that process of sanctification becoming like him because he loves you. All of this should cause us to want to serve him more and serve him better. 
John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, had this to say before he died. Look at this quote. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. (laughs) Oh, Lord, we thank you for being such a great Savior, that your sovereign hand is not above us getting ready to swat us, but to hold us close. That your grace is greater than our sin. We can't understand that. But somehow we can feel it. Because we're watching you in your word work through unworthy people like us. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust in you regardless of the circumstances. We thank you, Lord, when we're at the end of our rope. That that's your opportunity to step in and show us. To whisper in our ear and say, I'm here. So I pray for that person who may be in this room tonight. They're feeling lost, alone, afraid. Oh, Lord, just reassure them with your promise and your hope. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to Take a minute to have a Selah, which um, if this is your first time here, um, is a practice that we do that's a practice we follow from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament that often after a a stanza of of a psalm, there would be this little Selah, which basically just is an invitation to take a pause and to reflect. So if you love Jesus and you are in this room tonight, Just take a moment to pause and reflect on how he has been faithful in your life.
Amen. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, in the lives of those around us. Just like Mickey said, you carry us from our womb to our tomb and beyond. And so for every second that I have, every breath that I take, I thank you for giving that to me. We thank you for the fact that just like in the story of Esther and Mordecai, Lord God, that you use broken people to accomplish your unbroken, perfect promises. And that's the same truth that we can cling to today. And so, God, as we leave this place, I just ask that that faithfulness from you and only you would be our motivation, would be our hope, would be our strength. Now and forevermore, Jesus, we pray this in your holy and your precious name, King Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you guys need prayer, our prayer team is going to be up by the stage as always, but otherwise, you guys have a fantastic evening and let us have our benediction. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said, amen.